Well, as most of you know, we are in a series this Christmas season, four weeks of um, Advent. We are four Christmas hymns. And I've picked uh, familiar hymns, but yet theologically rich hymns. And we've been looking at them through the lens of Scripture. Two weeks ago, we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Last week, we were Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And this Sunday, we come to Joy to the World which is hymn number 270 in your hymnals. If you would, I invite you to open there. Hymn number 270. And as you're turning there, I, I do want to share with you a, a little book that my, uh, my daughter came to my office this week. And maybe she had this, or I forget. I forgot this. But anyway, okay, we got it from a, a, gift, a gift from church. And uh, the, the title of it, it says, Joy to the World, it's a sing-along Christmas pageant. And the special thing about this book is that when you open it, and so the idea is you're supposed to kind of sing along. I'm not going to sing along these words, but the words speak about the joy to the world, the Lord has come, let joy and gladness shine. Let's pray for peace on earth and everyone rejoice His birth. Joy to the world, it's Christmas time. Let everyone give thanks. Let hearts be filled with love. Let's thank God above. A time for giving thanks. It also speaks about Christmas time as a time for, for prayer and giving goodwill to men. It's a time of, of doing good in our thoughts and deeds and, and giving gifts and singing all year long and, and giving people their, um, what say, their love. It's just kind of what it is. It's about. It's a very familiar sort of a Christmas hymn. In fact, it is very, very famous. The reason why that book works, when you just sing it, it's just joy to the world. We all know that, that tune and what it's about. It's a very famous, perhaps one of the most famous of all the Christian Christmas hymns, uh, because Christmas is often associated with a time of joy. Uh, there's, just, there's just joy in the season. You know, the, the retailers are trying to make you happy, do everything they can to get you to buy, buy their stuff, but it's a, it's a joyous time, supposed to be. Uh, in fact, even on our, our Christmas tree right out there in the foyer, there's a big letter across there that says joy. Uh, joy is what Christmas often it is. And this speaks about joy that all the world should have as the Lord has come to earth. In fact, look at the first stanza. It says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. We see here the, the Lord coming to earth. We see here the, the call for all the earth to receive her as the coming king. Every heart is to be open and ready for the Lord to come. And all heaven and all nature is to sing for joy. And how appropriate it is for us to study this hymn, the third Sunday in Advent, the third candle being lit this morning, for joy. It's one of the, the themes of Christmas that, that often is there. And joy is the natural and proper response that we ought to be thinking about during Christmas season. Joy that God hasn't left us to our own. Joy that God hasn't forgotten us, but joy that God has come to us. In fact, that is found in the Bible. If you turn to Luke chapter 2, we looked at this last week, but we'll look at it again. Luke chapter 2 speaks of the coming of Christ and the association of it with joy. See, when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field, their first message was a message of joy. Luke chapter 2, 8 through 11. 
In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be frightened, for behold, here it is, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Right? Here's the message. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And the joy is this, that a Savior has been born for you in Bethlehem. And of course, that's what we celebrate this Christmas time. We celebrate the coming of our Savior, that, that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh to save us from our sins. In fact, that's exactly what Joseph was told. This child before he's even born, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Of course, we know that what started in Christmas time ended at the cross, where Jesus Christ died for our sins. Because in our sin, we all deserve to die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's just not physical death. It's also eternal death. Suffering eternally away from the presence of our Lord. Eternally in hell. But the good news is this, right? That, that God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the, the wages, what we work for is death. God gives this gift of eternal life to those who believe. And when we believe in Him, just trust in Him, God gives us this gift of eternal life. And not just merely living forever, but the idea of eternal life is living with God forever, enjoying His presence, enjoying His pleasures. As the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Just in God's presence forever there is fullness of joy. And so what little joy we may have this Christmas season... Maybe it's more, maybe it's less, depending on sometimes Christmas is a downer. It's difficult, but, but it, if it is joyful, the joy in heaven will far surpass this. The pleasures in heaven will far surpass this. Psalm 16, verse 11. And so we rightly sing at Christmas time, joy to the world, the Lord has come. In fact, let's sing that together. Okay, don't, don't leave me high and dry here. Let's sing it together. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. What a great Christmas song, right? Only the thing is, this song has nothing to do with Christmas. It's not a a Christmas song. Shock! It's about the second coming of Christ. Look down the other stanzas, right? Look there in stanza two. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Okay, so it says this. It says, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Now, does Jesus reign today? Yes, but not fully. 
So it's, 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 it's partial there. In some measure, he does. He doesn't reign fully as he might. Not, not now. In Psalm 110, the picture is this. That Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, awaiting the day when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That's where Jesus is now. He's waiting to bring about his full, fully established reign. Now, certainly, he reigns in our hearts. He reigns in the hearts of believers. He reigns in the church. But there is, quite frankly, all you got to do is pick up your newspaper and see there's a lot of America, a lot of the world where Jesus isn't reigning. It's just, it's not because he's incapable. It's because he hasn't chosen to fully put forth his, his reign. But when he reigns, all will be put in order. None will be in rebellion to him. And that's what I think is being talked about in the second stanza, the second coming when Jesus rules over all. Now, now think about the third stanza. No more let sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. There are sins and there are sorrows in this life. There are thorns in the ground. This takes us back to the Garden of Eden when Adam took that fruit and plunged the world, the entire human race, into sin. Romans 5.12 For through one man... Sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And today, each of us are a sinner by nature and choice. And of course, sin brings sorrow and heartache and pain and tears. But there will be a day when sin is no more, to which Isaac Watts is looking forward to. And then that's the second coming of Christ. In fact, you remember at the end of Revelation, when the reign and rule of Jesus has been established, what did John see? Or rather, what did he hear? He heard... A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And I think that's what stanza 3 is talking about. When the sins and sorrows grow no more. Where there are no sins and sorrows. When Jesus comes back to fully establish His rule and His reign. Nor thorns, it says, infest the ground. If any of you are into farming, into uh, gardening, you know the thorns and the thistles that grow. If you have flowers in your front yard, you know those things grow. And, and that again goes back to Adam's curse. The, 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 the curse that was inflicted upon the ground as a result of Adam's sin. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, But this hymn is talking about the day when thorns and thistles will no longer exist. And that will only come about the second coming of Christ when He fully exerts His rule over all. Indeed, that will be the time when His blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, His blessings will totally flow over all the earth. The fourth stanza, I believe, continues the theme. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. Now, when is it that all the nations are going to prove the glories of the righteousness of God? Right now, most of the nations, all the nations, are living in rebellion against the Lord. Psalm 2, why are the nations rage? The people devising vain things against the Lord and against His anointed. I mean, our nation is raging against God. Nations are contrary to God. But there will be a day when Christ comes and the nations will prove His righteousness. See, this isn't a song about Christmas. It's a song about the second coming of Christ when He fully rules the world. The nations are basking in His righteousness and love. Now, lest I totally smash this song forever, 
I think that it's appropriate to sing at Christmas time. I think we can. I think we we should uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because the first coming laid the groundwork for the second coming. I mean, without the first coming, the second coming couldn't happen because Jesus had to deal first with our sin, as he did in the first coming, and he will fully exert his sovereignty in his second coming. And furthermore, the reason I think that we should sing this hymn is because joy is a Christian message. Um, It is the Christmas message. In fact, our hymnal, it's surrounded by uh, hymns of joy. Just look back one. Look at right across the page. Hymn number 269. How great our joy. Joy, joy, joy. Because Christ has come. Or, Or 271, which we sang today. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. Just uh, adapting that hymn to Christmas time. And in fact, you can see some other Christmas hymns of joy. Hymn number 273. Good Christian men rejoice, we sang today. Joy, joy, news, news, we need to rejoice at this. Or, or 290, as with gladness, men of old. Just there, it even speaks about how, how uh, just with gladness, the men saw that star in the east and followed it. And uh, even next week, we'll, we'll look at uh, the theme, O Come All Ye Faithful, Joyful and Triumphant, hymn number 249. And beyond the word joy, many Christmas songs are, are filled with hope and happiness and triumph because the ultimate triumph and joy comes, begins when the baby is born in a manger and finishes ultimately at the second birth. So joy to the world is joy in the coming of Christ. Right? That's where there's great joy. And as Hymn number 270, Joy to the World here, it's, it's founded in, in uh, prophetic hope. It's, profo- it's founded in prophetic expectation. It's not just mere sentimentalism we're talking about here. It's not just, oh, well, we're just happy because we're happy. No, we're happy because a Savior has come. And Joy to the World is talking all about that. So I think it's worthy of being sung during the Christmas season, even if it's not necessarily a song about Christmas. It's got some themes in there that can attach to Christmas, particularly the coming of the Lord. And the hope that we have of everything is going to resolve. But it's about the second coming. And, and I, I want to show this to you. Actually, Joy to the World is a paraphrase of Psalm 98. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 98. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about the author of this hymn. Uh, it's, uh, Isaac Watts. He wrote Joy to the World. And, And in order to understand Joy of the World, I think you need to understand Isaac Watts. So we're going to spend some time talking about Isaac Watts this morning. Because I understand him, you understand the hymn. He was born in 1674 um, in England. And so if you think about England, 1674, 1662 was a huge day in the life of England. Uh, That's the day when many Protestant ministers, 2,000 of them, were kicked out of their churches for preaching the gospel. They were nonconformists. They didn't conform to the Church of, of England. And uh, he was born into a, a pastor's family. This was, whatever, 12 years after that. And several times his father was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He's a nonconformist minister, wouldn't conform to the Church of England. He was a gifted boy, studying Greek and Latin and Hebrew at a young age and sowing some proficiency in these languages. In fact, at age seven, he wrote this acrostic poem for his name, which showed not only his poetic talent, but he had a huge heart for God. Rich, if you want to show that up there. Here's Isaac Watts. And, okay, uh, I talked with Yvonne about this this week. And my seven-year-old? <laughs> uh, no. I think it could be perhaps because, well, some giftedness. 
but maybe our, our generation is so distracted, but they had nothing to do but read Greek and Hebrew at night. But here's what he said. Look at his heart for God. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth. So I've continued since my birth. Although Jehovah grace does daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me. Come, therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws, relieve me. Wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart. Then search and try the corners of my heart that I in all things may be fit to do service to thee and sing thy praises too. Age seven. Now, there may be some seven-year-olds in here. Gage, maybe you were writing poems like that at age seven. Right. Maybe you children want to do something like that. Just express your heart and passion towards God. That might be, be good, but it's incredible. But it, it just shows a little bit of his poetic talent. And as he grew up in church, he, he grew up and he went off to seminary. And then he was, was back with his father in the, the church where his, his dad was. And as he was observing church, he was a highly critical boy. As he was observing church, he came to dislike the singing. He, he felt like it was, it was heartless. And one of the things he attributed it to is the content of what was being sung was not so attractive. In his day, the songs that were sung in the church were only psalms put in rhyme and meter. Very little singing about Jesus. Now, certainly the, the psalms right, point to Jesus, and there is, but if you just take a psalm as of itself and literally translate it, it's, it's very little hope, very little talk about the, the cross and the crucifixion and the realities of everything. And he was complaining about this. Finally, his dad said, Well then, young man, why don't you just give us something better to sing? And he took up the challenge. And the next Sunday had uh, his first hymn. And it was well received in the church. Uh, where he attended. In fact, every Sunday for the next two years, he brought forth a new hymn, which he didn't put music to it. He just put rhyme and meter to it. Could be sung to, to various different hymns. And, and he, was, he was writing these and they're coming off and they're being received. And I think some were being sung in the church where he was. And one writer said these hymns slid off his pen like butter. There's something gifted about Isaac Watts that allowed him to do that. And so these early hymns that he wrote in 1707, he, he combined them. So 1707, he is born in um, 1674. So he's like 33 years old, 34 years old, something like that. And uh, he entitled his work Hymns and Spiritual Songs, simply poems put to rhyme and meter. Common meter, right? 6868 or... 8888 or 6666, the number of syllables in each so they could be sung to different tunes. And eight years later, he published a work, Divine Songs Attempted in Easy Language for the Use of Children. So maybe you've heard, I sing the mighty power of God that makes the, makes the nations rise. I sing the mighty power of God that uh, fills the lofty skies. I, I forget, that's not quite right. But anyway, that is a children's hymn. Published 16, 1715, we sing today. It just speaks about the, the goodness of God and creation, how everything proclaims how good He is. And then four years later, he published his Psalms. The Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament. In fact, I have a, um, a, a copy of that book right here, Isaac Wands, Watts. Now, this is abridged a little bit. This isn't his full deal, but this is abridged a little bit. Isaac Watts, Songs from the Psalms in Light of the New Testament the last, for use with or without music because there's really no music in here. It's just all, all words. 
though every single one of these can be sung to one of these songs in the front. Oh God, our help in ages past, which is a common meter and a short meter. Okay, which I think common meter, I forget what it is, whether it's six, eight, six, eight, short meters, maybe six, 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 I'm not sure. But uh, when I survey the wondrous cross right here to a, a long meter and, and all this a simple melody for eight, 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 faith of our fathers and, and just five of them. And you can sing every single one of his uh, his psalms to this. It's not a hymnal, but it contains all of those in, in rhyme and meters. Now. These hymns immediately gained acceptance in his father's church, but gaining acceptance in other places proved more difficult um, because the thought of the day followed the regulative principle of worship, which John Calvin in the Great Reformation had espoused. And he, he said we should do nothing in the church that is not explicitly mentioned in the Scriptures. All right, so, so think about Catholic Church. Think about Reformation. You've got the Catholic Church and they're doing the things they do. And, and then, then you've got Luther who loved his Catholicism but wanted to reform it. And so what he said is he said, we can do anything in the church that's just not a violation of Scripture. And so that's why the Lutheran Church is so close to the Catholic Church because he just took out the bad parts that weren't, weren't in Scripture. And that's the way the Lutherans came. And his battle, by the way, was to say, uh, only in the Catholic Church, only the choirs were singing but let's bring the hymns into the congregational music, right? Let's have the congregation sing. That was his big battle. But on the other side, you've got Calvin in the Reformation who says we can't do anything in the church except but what is explicitly commanded in the Bible. And the hymn book of the Old Testament is the Psalms, so we must sing only the Psalms. And that's the prevailing view of the day, at least in the, the church in England at the time. Uh, the nonconformist church of England is, is where they were. And... Um, the Psalms of Isaac Watts, right, we're, uh, we're looking to change that or we're working even to change that um, because of the fact that I mentioned before about how just songs of redemption, you know, weren't there. It's just, just the songs of, of the Psalms, people's experience with their worship to God. And uh, yes, certainly there were some anticipations of Christ, but not as full as it, as it could. And so as these Psalms of Isaac Watts started getting out controversy in the church. Um, and, and in our, our time today, we call them worship wars. Um, and you think that our generation was the only generation that argues over worship in the church? Uh, not so. And there was a, a big argument because as these pressed their way into churches, it was highly resisted. Um, not, catch this, okay? Today we argue over musical style. Today we argue over theological content. Um, depth. Because today it's all about style. It's all about feeling. That's a totally different issue. That's not the issue they're dealing with. It wasn't about style. They're going to sing to the same tunes. It it wasn't about theology because the theology wasn't changing at all. And the theology is rich and deep. That's why we still sing many of his songs today. But it's because the source of the theology was changing. They weren't singing the exact words of the Psalms anymore. And in fact, exact words weren't the goal of Isaac Watts. In fact, when he, he wrote his book here, in the preface, he explicitly says, explicitly says, he says, I want to accommodate the book of Psalms to Christian worship. In other words, I want to take the, the words and thoughts and ideas of the Psalms and so massage them in light of Jesus coming to speak about a Christian experience of God. And so he, listen to what he wrote in his preface. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say this. He, he said, where the psalmist uses 
sharp invectives against his personal enemies, I've endeavored to turn the edge of them against our spiritual adversaries, sin, Satan, and temptation. When the flights of his faith are love and sublime, I have often sunk the expressions with the, the reach of an ordinary Christian. And when the words imply some peculiar wants or distresses, joys or blessings, I've used words of greater latitude and comprehension suited to the general circumstances of men. So in other words, what we're saying here is when, when, when David and, and Asaph were particular, he sought to broaden those so that we might apply those in every way. And when the original runs in the form of prophecy concerning Christ and his salvation, I've given a historical turn to the sense because we're after the cross. Where the writers of the New Testament have cited or alluded to any parts of the Psalms, I've often indulged the liberty of paraphrase according to the words of Christ or his apostles. Let the New Testament speak back onto the Old Testament Psalms. He says, um, when the psalmist described religion by the fear of God, I have joined faith and love to fear. Where he speaks of pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I have added and the merits of our Savior. Where he talks about sacrificing goats or bullocks, I chose to mention the sacrifice of Christ the Lamb of God, to which Leviticus points, which we're learning. When he attends the ark with shouting into Zion, I sing the ascension of my Savior into the heavens or his presence of the church on earth. And when he promises abundance of wealth and honor and long life, I have changed some of those to typical blessings for grace and glory and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel promised in the New Testament. And here's what he says. He says this, I am fully satisfied that more honor is done to our blessed Savior by speaking his name his graces and his actions in his own language according to the brighter discoveries he has now made than by going back to the Jewish forms of worship in the language of all types and figures. In other words, what, what, what Isaac Watts was doing was trying to merely take the old Psalms and rewrite them as David would have written them had he lived a post-Christ life. But I think also you need to understand that one of the things that his big aim in all these things was to reach the heart. He wants to, to reach the heart. Because that was his, his problem in church, right? Is that people were singing heartless. And so he wanted to sing these songs which, which hit into the heart and joy to the world. Hits our heart. There's just something about it. Something about his poetical skill that helped with that. Now, Jonathan Edwards, right? This was, you know, 1720s, uh, around here, 1730s, starting to go. By the 1750s, it's all coming over to America. And Edwards, I read this in his um, biography. He, deal, he talked about this, um, this man that he was dealing with. And his daughter actually relates this secondhand about Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of Northampton, Massachusetts. And he's dealing with this guy at this other meeting who is insisting on the Psalms. Let, let me show you the passion with which these Psalms were resisted. And uh, Esther says that her dad, Jonathan, tells me that he dined at Lawyer Smith's yesterday and he never saw a man in such a rage as he is about the Psalms. He is quite beyond reason or anything but passion and declares that if my father or any other minister in the country should offer to set the Scotch Psalms, he will get up immediately and go out of the house and order his family out and will never again set foot into that meeting. And my father said he endeavored to reason calmly with him and would have him consider that that method may not be the most prudent that could be taken but he would not hear him talk and told him that it did not signify for him anything else to talk with him, for he was resolutely fixed and would not be moved. I mean, people staunch are saying, nope, the Scottish hymns, the Scottish Psalter, 
and I, ha- I have a hymnal. I looked for it in my desk, <laughs> but Ryan's got it because I have I've even said, you know, maybe we should sing some of these psalms in our in our context here because um, here's what Edward said. Edward said, as far, I am far from thinking the books of Psalms should be thrown out in our public worship, but that it should always be used in our Christian church to the end of the world. But I know of no obligation that we're under obligation to confine ourselves to it. And so he's saying as the Psalms are good, they ought to continue on. But we're not just constricted to those, as people say. And, and from the best I can tell, that's exactly what happens. The the old songs, psalms, continue to be sung, but Isaac Watts' paraphrases were introduced and they, they gained speed and people enjoyed them. People loved speaking of the redemption, seeing the redemption. They began to get more and more acceptance in the church of God. And now the church has swung completely to Watts' side in the fact that rare is the church today that continues to sing metrical psalms in our worship. So I've talked to Ryan a little bit about maybe we can sing a, a metrical psalm or two or three that's in our repertoire. Maybe some, some of the best ones. So you kind of get an idea of that is. But, you know, we have swung, actually, by the way, far beyond Isaac Watts in our hymnody today because it's not merely that, that we're just singing Isaac Watts hymns today or, or in paraphrases of Scripture where the songs that we sing today don't even attempt at all to paraphrase the Scripture. Rather, most songs come from some poetical expression of our praise to God. Many of our songs originate circumstances of a songwriter or you know, something that strikes them. And so poetically, they, they offer up worship. Which, by the way, we might look back and say, oh, that's really bad. I mean, right, there's no attachment to Scripture. But, but think, what, what was David doing when he was writing the Psalms? Wasn't it his walk with God and his experience there that, that, that he's just communing with God and, and offering up his praise and his perspective in light of his theology, what he knew? That, that's not a bad thing. Now, he was inspired. We're not inspired. But fundamentally, it's... It's our theology which meets with our experience that speaks forth then a praise in the songs that we, we sing. But there's very little that comes that tries just to put Scripture together. Maybe some scriptural themes a little bit soft, but like Isaac Watts was looking to paraphrase passages of Scripture. But anyway, Isaac Watts simply to Christ, looking to Christianize the Psalms. And when Isaac Watts paraphrased Psalm 98... He came up with joy to the world. I, I want to read it for you, Psalm 98, and then I want you to see how loose he was with the text. Right? So, in other words, what I want you to do is take joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, heaven and nature sing, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, right? Let no more sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse. I want you to have those words in your mind as you read Psalm 98 and then try to try to match them. All right. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he's done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre. With a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. 
before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, at first blush, you might say, wow, where's joy to the world in that? And then you might say, okay, Steve, I don't see joy to the world hardly in there. I see maybe a little bit. But how do you then say that joy to the world is Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98? Well, I say that because Psalm 98 in here is joy to the world. The Lord is come. Um, Now, in some regard, I hope this shows you a little bit how loose Isaac Watts was with the text of the Psalms. And um, you can see how those grew up who grow up singing the literal psalms, then all of a sudden this comes in and say, this, we're going to sing this instead of singing Psalm 98? No way! Just because they love the old psalms, and as they sang, they learned the Scripture a little bit better as well. It's understandable how upset they were. They, they felt like they were losing their Scripture. In many ways, I think it's like our Bible translation controversies today. You know, in, in recent years, the number of English translations has skyrocketed. 150 years ago, there was essentially one translation that everyone used. Um, the King James. Not that that was the only translation. There were other translations, but that was the only one popular translation and everyone used it. But along came the scholars, along came the resources and uh, dozens of translations. You go to BibleGateway.com today where I do a bit of my, my study uh, each week and uh, 50 different translations are there. English translations. And um, making the change from the old King James... To modern translations is difficult for many. Uh, I think some have objected on a textual standpoint, arguing the text of the King James is, uh, is better than the text that we have for our modern translations today. That's, that's one. I can respect that. Um, but there's many, maybe most of who have resisted the change based upon preference. Right? They like the sound, the cadence of the old King James. And maybe they've memorized so much of the King James that they, they want it to stay and they don't want it to depart. But maybe there's another reason as well, because many of these new translations play fast and loose with the Bible. And and, and the reason they do is philosophically because these new translations are not word-for-word translations, but they are thought-for-thought translations. Right? In other words, it's not the words of the sentences that are the the important thing. What's the important thing is to get the thought across in sentence-by-sentence. And and, um, that's a, a little bit... Like with Isaac Watts' dealer. Now, I will say this. When, when studying the Bible, I will resist a paraphrase um, very, very hard. Because you can't quite get thought for thought. Although I see a, a place for paraphrase because a paraphrase might say it's so different that it stirs your heart to God in a, in a different way. Kind of like a sermon, right? I'm not word for word in what I'm preaching, but I'm preaching thoughts about the, the Scripture and it might stir your heart in such a way that encourages you. Um, but, but notice the difference between Isaac Watts' hymns and the old Scottish Psalter. He, he's trying to capture the heart. He's trying to, trying to give you the heart of what's happening. And that's what drove him from the beginning, right? Is the people were singing with little heart. And so he, he wanted that they sing not with cold words, but with warm lyrics to touch the heart. And, and here's, here's my catch. I think that Joy to the World does a great job of bringing out the heart of Psalm 98. The more I looked at it, the more I was amazed. Let, let me show you what I mean. First of all, look at, look at how um, the psalm contains this, this idea of, of joy. Um, actually, before we get there, though, uh, you, you need to know that joyful, joyful, we, uh, I'm sorry, um, joy to the world, the Lord has come, doesn't begin until verse 4 because Isaac Watts wrote another hymn for verses 1 through 3. 
which is in his psalms. And that hymn goes like this. All right, so look at Psalm 98 as I read Isaac Watts' hymn from the first three verses. <clears throat> to our almighty maker God, new honors be addressed. His great salvation shines abroad and makes his nations blessed. He spake the word to Abram first. His truth fulfills the grace. The Gentiles make his name their trust and learn his righteousness. Let the whole earth his love proclaim with all her different tongues and spread the honors of his name in melody and songs. The message of one through three, verses one through three go like this. Let us sing to the Lord because he has made known his salvation and let all the nations see the salvation of God. And in fact, um, those words set the tone for all of Psalm 98 and and that is much the theme of joy to the world. The Lord has come. Is it is that the Lord has come. He's bring salvation. Let all the nations rejoice in that. And you get that flavor through this hymn. Um, but even let's look at this attitude of joy, which verses one through three talk about. The, the joy is there comes screaming all over joy to the world, right? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy to the earth stands at two. Or stanza three, right? He rules the world with truth and, and grace. Is that the nations are there, the, the worlds are there. He's ruling and reigning them, reigning over them. So he says, right, let let every heart prepare him room and let heaven and nature sing. And stanza two, let men their songs employ. It's just the, the salvation has come, so let's sing. A stanza four, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That's all throughout. This psalm is the idea that, that God has, has made salvation known. Let the nations be glad. Let us sing for joy. So even though this psalm technically isn't verses 1 through 3, the ideas are still there because it is a unifying idea of Psalm 98. Well, let, let's continue on. Let's look at verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of a melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. The whole flavor of these words are joy and worship and praise to God. That's the call to all the earth, as verse 4 says. It's a call to break forth and sing for joy, as what verse 4 says. It calls for instruments, the lyre and trumpets and horn, right? Stringed instruments and sound instruments and horns and, and just letting it rip with the joy and praise of God. That's the idea of Psalm 98. That's the idea of verses 4 through 6. And that is the flavor of joy to the world. Yes. Let, let there be great joy to the world. Let us, let us sing. Let there be great joy to the earth. And let's repeat the sounding joy. Let's repeat the sounding joy. Let's repeat the sounding joy over and over, repeating the joy that we have in Christ coming to earth. So the psalm is joyful. Also, the psalm is universal. And so also, Isaac Watts picked up on this universal idea. In fact, it's, it's a call to, to have the entire earth sing praise to God. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And by verse, verse 3 in Psalm 98, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And verse 4, then shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. It's, it's all the ends of the earth. It's, it, it's all the earth. In fact, so inclusive is Psalm 98 and so universal is it that it's not just people who are called to praise. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountains sing together for joy. You've got nature, the chorus of nature singing in um, Psalm 98. See, Psalm 98 isn't merely a call for people to praise the Lord. It's a call for 
for all creation to speak well of the Lord, to praise the Lord as well. And, and the reason why creation sings his praise is because the earth is lifted when Christ returns. The curse is lifted when Christ returns. Romans 8, verses 21 and 23 speak about the anxious longing of creation. Waiting for the day when it's set free from its slavery to corruption. It, whether you know it or not, our, our trees out here, our grass out here, our, our vegetation is, is groaning for the day when everything is made right. There's something within the plants that knows something is not made right. There's something in the mountains and in the, in the rivers that Psalm 98 calls them to praise the Lord because, as verse 9 says, He's coming to judge the earth. He's going to set things straight is the idea there. And, and, and you see that in Isaac Watts's just the, the universality of this hymn. Look at stanza one. And heaven and nature sing. So it's not just people singing. It's heaven that's singing. It's the welkin that we learned last week. And also it's nature that's called to sing. Or stanza two. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, right? The, the fields that are out there or the raging waters in the floods or the rocks and the hills and the plains, while they repeat the sounding joy, while they repeat the sounding joy, while those elements of nature are singing, this universal idea. Stanza three, the blessing of the Lord comes to the ground which no longer yields its thorns anymore. Psalm 98 is joyful. So also joyful, joyful, we adore you. Psalm 98 is universal. And so also joyful, joyful, we adore you. The, the only thing that's missing, I think, of Isaac Watts' song is the mention of judgment. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 98. Before the Lord, right? Let all the rivers, let all the worlds, the mountains clap their hands before the Lord because He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And we don't see judgment at all in joy to the world. Now, I do think, though, that Isaac Watts does a good job at getting, though, at the result of judgment. The idea of judgment in, uh, in Psalm 98 is that when the Lord comes as king, all will be made right. And there's not going to be injustice anymore. And there's going to be no thorns and sorrows. Everything's going to be set and made right. In fact, Look at how often um, joy to the world comes. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. This is the Lord. This is the sovereign Lord. Let earth receive her king. Right? The king's going to come back and he's going to rule in righteousness. His righteous reign. The king of the earth. Stanza 2. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. It's not just he's, he's saving as he's doing today, but he is actually reigning and ruling over the earth. There, stanza 3. There's no more curse because the judge has come to right all wrongs, to make it right. Stanza four, he rules the world with truth and grace. He's not a tyrannical ruler. He's a, a graceful, truthful ruler that's over the earth. And, and the idea of the hymn is that God is going to return and make everything right. And that is the idea of his judgment here of Psalm 98, verse 9. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. See, when Christ comes back, all wrongs, will be made right. He's going to make everything right. So, are there things in your life that are wrong? God will make it right in His way. You know, we, I, we live in a world of tension and unrest. We, we, our nation right now, racially divided, 
huge, big cry for justice. I mean, just even the last couple of weeks, right? Michael Brown, Eric Garner. All I got to do is mention those names. Images come across your mind. You think about stuff in the newspapers. Even this past week in Rockford, racial protest. And, and, and I'll just say this. As long as we're in a sin-cursed world, this will always be a problem. There'll always be injustice. There'll always be complaining. People think they're unjust. People are being unjust. We have problems and conflicts, right? That's how it's always going to be. But there's going to be a day when God will return and all that goes away. And the first seed of that was when Christ came at, at Christmas time. But when, when Christ returns, He's going to return as judge of the earth. In fact, that's what Paul preached, right? That Jesus Christ is coming as the judge at the end of his sermon at Mars Hill and in Athens. He speaks about that, that God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he's declaring to all men that all ever repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed by raising him from the dead. Peter talked about that, how the Old Testament speaks about forgiveness of sins, but now the New Testament message that Christ has come, he's going to judge the world. How you need to repent and turn and, and get right. And when Christ returns and he pours out his judgment, like verse 9 says, nobody ever again will be able to cry, Injustice! God will deal with all of us justly. Now, here, here's, here's what I want to do, just as I, as I end my message here. I, I just say this. Is you realize that every sin ever committed needs to be punished. Every sin ever committed will be punished. Every sin you ever commit must be punished. And the better news is this. Is that for those who trust in the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, God has punished Him in our place. That's why He can be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We, we trust in Jesus. God punishes our sin by having punished it on the cross of Christ. If we don't trust ourselves to Jesus, we basically come to God open without a shield of protection at all and He will punish us for our sins. So we'll go to hell to pay eternally for sins that are against the eternal God. can never be paid for. But Christ took the punishment of those who believe. And there's reason there for joy, right? Is that what began at Christmas, and here's a Christmas tree, will culminate at the cross. At the cross is where ultimate justice is. Where truth and mercy meet together. The truth that sin needs to be punished and the mercy of God to send His Son to be our punishment for us. And all I think we can do is say, joy, right? We have joy. This, this, this summons us to all of us. And I, I just trust you'll see that and you'll trust in the, the greatness of our Savior this Christmas season. I want to close by just praying to the Lord, thanking Him for what He's done in Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray You'd help us to sing a new song. Oh, Lord, I pray You'd help us to sing with joy in our hearts because You have done wonderful things and how Your right arm has given us victory. God, thank You, O Lord, that You have made known Your salvation and revealed Your righteousness to the ends of the nations. God, today, just your, your Word is proclaimed like never before. Anyone with access to the internet is without excuse. Father, I, I thank you that you have remembered your loving kindness and your faithfulness to Abraham and to his seed. Thank you that through Abraham all the generations of the earth will be blessed and that today we can, we can look at the salvation of our Lord and rejoice, O oh God, in that. 
Help us this Christmas season to be filled with joy, to shout, O God, joyfully to the Lord, to break forth and sing for joy to You. And may we sing praises to You this Christmas season. God, I pray in all ways imaginable, God, whether that's with wind instruments or whether that's with string instruments or percussion instruments or with voices or with songs, God, may may you receive our praise because you have come and save us. And and Lord, I would pray that also this Christmas season we would have our eyes on, on the future. God, when you come back ultimately to set things right, when all the heavens and all the earth We'll sing in praise to you, whether that's the seas or the mountains or the rivers, clapping their hands before you because, O oh Lord, you will set things right. And Father, I thank you for the, the cove of protection that we all can have in Jesus Christ. He would be a fool who would not trust in Jesus. And so this day, Lord, I pray, even if there are some here that aren't believing, think perhaps of kids, think perhaps of maybe of skeptical adults, not believing you, not believing your word, not trusting in all you say. Father, I pray that God, even today might be a day of salvation where people would turn and, and trust in you and realize the, the glories of, of what we sing at Christmas as the Lord is come, anticipating that day when you come and, and make all wrongs right. Oh God, so be our, our help and our refuge. God, stir us this Christmas season like never before. And as Isaac Watts, as he wrote this hymn, aim for our hearts. God, may our hearts be stirred to see Christ and to rejoice that he, he's come to save us. So God, may we sing like never before this great joy to the world that has come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.